Hello, my dears. You're listening to White Stag Conversations, the personal growth podcast where spirit and science meet for your best self and optimal health. I'm your host and NLP coach, Natasha, and today is our first guest episode. Now, you'll have to bear with us because we did record this over Zoom. The audio isn't great, but the message was too important not to share. And I'm really excited about today's guest. Danny Devine is a former paramedic who healed her PTSD and made it her mission to share with the world that trauma can be healed. She's a nomad living in a home on wheels while she writes her first book and advocates for others with mental illness. And most importantly, she's my sister. Welcome to the podcast, Danny. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honestly stoked to do this with you because this makes me happy sharing about recovery and NLP in general. Yes, there's a reason I chose you to be my first guest. (laughs) (laughs) Especially because um, your recovery and that whole story so perfectly ties into why I chose NLP over social work. Um, Which I love. Yeah, lost my train of thought, but it's just, (laughs) it ties in perfectly. So now that I've given my own quick introduction, let's dive into the gritty stuff. Um, So tell me a bit about your experience with PTSD. I think it's so funny, first of all, that you're interviewing me like this, because Tasha had a firsthand account of everything that I went through. Unfortunately, she saw the highs and all of the lows. And I did my best to hide it from her too. But uh, Mm. here we are. (laughs) You did a great job. I like to think so. And that was Um, sarcasm, by the way. (laughs) So I like to tell everybody that I went for a good old amount of time deep in denial, um, because it took me actually about two years to even accept that I had PTSD. And this is coming after four separate clinicians diagnosed me with PTSD. And I told them, nope, that's too easy an answer. And I didn't want to hear it. And I just rejected that constantly for about two years. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a great start. But like I said, I think it's, I think it's amazing that you're interviewing me about all of this because, uh, Unfortunately, like I said, Tasha witnessed a lot of the lows before I even acknowledged that anything was going on with me. Um, She witnessed the denial firsthand when I would go out with friends and pretend that everything was normal and then have an absolute breakdown and scream about why I couldn't do anything right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and have her just sitting there like, okay, (laughs) where do we go from here? Because it's not it's not an easy thing to experience by any means, nor is it easy to talk about, which is why I've made it my mission to share about my recovery and the possibility of recovery, because I don't think enough people talk about that. And that unfortunately is where a lot of the stigma around PTSD stems from as well. Yeah, for sure. It's not an easy thing for anybody to talk about. And I feel like it's even more difficult or more stigmatized in the first responder industries. And you and I have talked about that at length, too, about how my denial, I think, really stemmed from being in the first responder community because we're so quick to tell you that, no, we're fine and we're good to keep moving on because 
we're used to putting our needs second to the patient, to what the call, whatever. And unfortunately, I think we're so used to brushing off our own needs and our own emotions, especially that when the possibility of a diagnosis like this even breaks the surface, we're no, <laughs> like, no, I'm going to reject that vehemently because I've told all of my coworkers for my entire career now that no, I'm fine and I can get past these emotions. And really, it's not about emotion at that point. It's buried so deep within that you have a clinical diagnosis. And that I think too many people still deny because I did it too. So what helped you to accept the diagnosis? So I actually put together a timeline of symptoms, which I share on my website, and I'll give you guys the details for that later. But uh, if you bounce over to my website and onto the resources page, you'll find my timeline of symptoms, which is a nice little visual diagram showing you how long it took me to accept my diagnosis Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and some of the surroundings or the circumstances that I was living through as I came to terms with that. Um, So I devolved quite a bit. I went from being an active duty paramedic in the fall of 2014 to quite literally fleeing my job. And I moved back to my childhood home. I was living back at home with my parents, working part-time at a pharmacy. So something that um, I did not go to school for, that was essentially the job that I was working in high school. Um, And I had backtracked as far as I was concerned mentally. I had given up. I had run away. There was all these negative associations that I was I was coming to these conclusions about myself. And it, it really just wasn't the truth. But it took... Like I said, years of that and years of the shame and self-degradation. So what brought me out of it? Unfortunately, I had moved in with a boyfriend and started working as a personal trainer. And I threw myself like completely into my work. And I got so burnt out and so overwhelmed doing that, that I told myself I was just not meant for work. I was dismissing my symptoms. I was saying, you know, well, I couldn't hack it as a paramedic. I couldn't hack it working in the pharmacy. I couldn't hack it as a personal trainer. And I started working in administration, which for me was like bottom of the totem pole. It was the easiest thing for me to do. My written and verbal communication skills had always come easily from a young age. So Mm -hmm. it felt like the easy answer. And I really just regressed into this smaller version of myself. Um, And it wasn't until I started working in administration that I accepted that I had fallen so far from where I was and what I wanted to be doing, um, that I accepted my diagnosis. And I started treatment in the fall of 2015 or going into the 2016 winter. Um, And yeah, that really came about because my boyfriend and I started to notice symptoms that I couldn't deny. Um, so I'll give the golden example. We went out for a date in downtown Toronto one night and two fire trucks, full lights and sirens converged and turned onto the street corner that I was standing on. And as they got closer, I could feel the panic mounting, but of course, still being in denial or very, very fundamentally accepting my PTSD, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. at the basics of it, I, I felt the panic rising. I felt myself being afraid of what others were seeing or thinking about me. And then all I remember thinking was, what is that noise? Before I realized it was coming out of me and I was making this awful wailing noise. Again, downtown Toronto, like busy afternoon heading into the evening. Oh no. Absolutely melted 
at the point that these fire trucks converged and dissociated, which yeah. to me, barely accepting my diagnosis, I was like, what the hell is happening? So I blacked out basically is what dissociation feels like for some people. And for myself, it was literally my brain checked out. It said, mm-hmm. we're not here. We're not doing this. <laughs> uh, my boyfriend later said that I fell completely silent and just crumpled into the ground. And he had to kind of scoop me up and wake me up, essentially, because I was so distanced from the present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, long story short, we kind of brushed that off, moved on, went on our date. Um, and it wasn't until we were going home talking about what had happened that we said, like, hey, so that thing that happened, that wasn't really normal. I started to acknowledge that I had these things going on. You know, I was um, I was getting emotional during inappropriate circumstances. So intimacy, for instance, I was crying. I would have intense shame. I would feel completely numb. I would have flashbacks spontaneously. And of course, now is when I'm finally accepting, hey, normal people don't feel these things and they don't completely devolve in the career sense (laughs) the way that I did. So I really, I was coming close to hitting rock bottom. And I think that was more or less what caused me to seek help. Because I think a lot of people don't realize too, that when they're experiencing these things, um, like a flashback, you would think you know what that looks and feels like. We see so many examples of it in movies and TV, I'm thinking in particular. Mm-hmm. But when it happens, it's really just like, it's like your brain checks out. So sometimes when you come back from it, you don't always acknowledge the time that you lost to that dissociation or that flashback. Mm-hmm. You just kind of try to move on. You don't want to think about that stuff. The things that you're flashing back to are uncomfortable memories or traumatic memories. And it makes sense that you're just trying to keep going because you want to run away from all of these things. And I think it's important to recognize that the very act of wanting to run away from those feelings (laughs) is a red flag. Yeah. How difficult was that conversation on the way home? Oh my gosh. He pointed out that that was the reaction that soldiers sometimes have when coming home from war. (laughs) And unfortunately, I think that's like the most basic connection that we can formulate when we're looking at those things firsthand, because it's like, hey, that's sort of like that thing I saw on TV one. So, I mean, I can't blame him because both of our, um, I mean, especially his exposure to PTSD and mental illness at that point, he, he had very little exposure or awareness of any of it. I was taught what it looks like in school. But beyond that, we really try not to see it in the first responder community, which I think is another contention point. (laughs) Yeah, just adding to that raging stigma. But that insecurity in my relationship, because it was still a relatively new relationship. And I just I was like, what do you mean that's not normal? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just having a hard time, you know, like it's nothing and minimized it and he let me minimize it because he didn't really know what we were dealing with either and it scared him I think as much as it scared me so we just pretended it didn't happen I think that's a fairly common response to trauma. Like a lot of people are resistant to even that word. And you said it perfectly, like the normal person, their only exposure is what they've seen on TV and movies and like Mm -hmm. the Hollywood version of it. it. They associate trauma and PTSD with something that soldiers have and that military personnel have, but like the average person won't ever experience that and that's not at all the case the statistics scream otherwise right 
and you almost feel like you have to negate your own trauma because it came from a what you would consider a normal circumstance or a normal call as a paramedic like Mm -hmm. I'm used to these things so why would that be considered trauma all of a sudden or why would one call stand out against any other you know yeah and yeah you start to try to rationalize that or justify your trauma and at the end of the day trauma is trauma like you don't get to decide what affects you emotionally (laughs) sorry Mm -hmm. but you don't like it's in your biology and unfortunately there's usually a lot of setup or exposure like conditioning that they've experienced beforehand that can sometimes cumulatively amount to PTSD and we just minimize all these small things until all of a sudden it's not a small issue anymore. Yeah, I um, often have this conversation and almost borderline argument with some people. Um, and I have to insist that, you know, you can't compare your own experience to that of somebody else because that's not fair to them and it's not fair to you, especially in regard to trauma. You know, if you've lived a relatively sheltered life and something that doesn't seem that big can be traumatic because it's different from mm-hmm. what your brain has been exposed to so far. And vice versa, if you had, you know, a really rough, abusive childhood or adolescence even, then you have a certain level of acceptance, I guess. And like, Mm -hmm. kind of accumulatively, like you said, will result in trauma, but it's different. And it's not fair to compare your own experience to somebody else's. So it's not fair and it doesn't get us anywhere. Like, what is the point of that, really? Exactly. You know, you're denying yourself an opportunity to heal and live a better life because you won't accept that there is trauma there that needs to be addressed. Right. It's like we're so busy trying to move past it and get over it and prove that we don't feel about it. Yeah. (laughs) When really it's like, what, what is so bad about just admitting that that was a hard call or that those were some crappy circumstances that you had to walk into at work today. Like they say, so the statistic around trauma, and I think this is amazing because so many times first responders think that they are almost beholden to a certain amount of trauma because of their career. So I hear this a lot in what I do advocating for those with mental illness and against the stigma that surrounds us. So only 8% of people who experience a traumatic situation develop PTSD. So this means that regardless of the career that you chose, of the circumstances that you walk into, of whatever it is that you're dealing with or struggling with, it might not cause PTSD in someone else, but based on the pre-existing factors in your life, based on the conditions that surrounded that call, based on the support network that you had at that certain date and time. Mm -hmm. Like all of these things compound and sometimes it develops into PTSD. And I think we think that, like I said, you're almost beholden to a certain amount of trauma because of your job. Mm -hmm. That's not a responsibility. Like your responsibility is to help people and to do your job, obviously. But when you start taking it home with you, that becomes about you and not about your job. Yeah. And that line, I think a lot of people just lure because we're expected to be the professional on the job. So like I said, hiding your emotions and pretending that you're okay is almost second nature. And I think that's a huge, huge flaw that we need to correct in the industry too, because it's this toxic, like, I can deal 
mm-hmm. mentality. And it just, it's so toxic. Like it's so insidious because it makes it feel like we can't express our emotions at the end of the day. Yeah. And it kind of dehumanizes your experience by right. denying that, even denying your own experience. It just like we're not just machines that respond right. when people call 911. You're still a human. Yeah. We could talk about stigma and statistics <laughs> all day. All day. So I'll probably get you back on the podcast. But tell me a little bit about the kinds of therapies and the psychology methods that you went through once you had accepted your diagnosis. Yeah. So first off, actually, I bought a textbook and I talk about this book on my on my website. That was my go to for the longest time because I bought it at my local bookstore. Um, It didn't require me to state my diagnosis or talk about the trauma that I experienced Mm -hmm. because at that point I still wasn't considering it to be trauma. I just had a hard time. (laughs) It's the words that I was putting on it. (laughs) So that was my right hand man for a little while. And then when the textbook didn't work, because there was only a certain amount of accountability in that, you know, like, I didn't have to journal about my feelings when I didn't want to. So that happened maybe once every two months. After this whole thing that I went through when I dissociated on the street corner, I looked into care providers and what I got from YouTube and the internet basically was EMDR. So it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Basically, I had watched so many YouTube videos of veterans just like talking about their experience in the recovery aspect, like what they had experienced in terms of therapies and what they had felt when they were doing certain therapies. And this seemed to be uh, the one conclusion that everybody came to was EMDR is the one that works. So fun. I go and I find a local provider and she talks to me about how she's been doing this for years. Um, And essentially what they do is they target you in a certain way, either with audio that bounces from one ear to the next to the next, like left, right, left, right kind of thing back and forth, Mm -hmm. or they tap your hands. So this is what my care provider did is she tapped the backs of my hands, left, right, left, right, as we were recounting the experiences that I thought had formed my trauma. So at this point, I'm just recounting random calls that were maybe a little bit more difficult situations. Like I still didn't really know what was at the root of my trauma. Right. So she said, that's fine, because EMDR will basically recap everything you went through top to bottom. So great. Can't wait to dive in and tell an absolute stranger about everything I went through. Is EMDR a form of prolonged exposure therapy? It is and it isn't, because some care providers will have you actually share what you went through and go through your experience top to bottom. And some will just have you like think about it. I've even seen some care providers that have people write. So it's just like free thought flowing words kind of thing. Okay. Um, And then supposedly their unconscious mind presents the trauma or presents the issue that they need to kind of get past. Right. The whole concept behind this, and I explain this in greater detail on my website as well, but they say that when you're sleeping and when you're processing your day um, in REM sleep, in the deepest part of your sleep, they notice that human and animals' eyes moved backwards and forwards, left, right, left, right, left, right. And so they figured, let's recreate that processing by physically stimulating left, right, left, right, and kind of forcing the brain to get through your issues. Didn't work. 
(laughs) So we'll start there because I had really high hopes. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't talk about as well is every time you dive into one of these therapies, you're being told this is the one that's going to make it better. Right. And it's so hard not to put so much faith in that because you're like, things are a hellscape right now. I'm not admitting it to anybody, but my life is not okay. Yeah. And then it doesn't make it better. (laughs) So for some people, don't get me wrong, like that will lead them basically to the doorstep of recovery, which all the power to you. Unfortunately, my care provider failed to notice that I was not emotionally equipped to be recapping everything that I went through. Mm -hmm. Um, And doing so actually sent me into a state of suicidal ideation. So I started planning my own death. And that's kind of when doctors raised the red flag (laughs) so soon as you have a plan. And unfortunately, I was hospitalized for being suicidal for a couple months. And I can confidently say that was at the hands of EMDR. So I just think that if it is the treatment for you, fine, great, not discrediting the treatment at all. (laughs) But go into it being aware that a lot of these therapies require you to recap and share your experience, Mm -hmm. which unfortunately cements the trauma in a lot of people's minds because you're recapping it, you're painting it with this negative association, which your brain has already assigned it, and you're just making it that much worse. Yeah. Um, And yeah, so after EMDR, fortunately, uh, we had a family friend that my dad had worked with in the past And he started seeing me. He was a forensic psychologist based out of Whitby. So he started treating me with cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. So CBT and DBT. These were essentially like the best forms of therapy that I experienced until NLP because they helped me cope and learn about what was actually happening inside my brain. So we didn't have to recap anything Um, In the beginning, he just really made me comfortable with our relationship, which was huge as a care provider. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to have that trust. You have to be honest and open with each other because otherwise I'm just telling him what he wants to hear. Yeah. And he taught me about the reptilian brain and what happens with PTSD. So again, I share more about that on my website. But the long and short of it is um, you learn to cope with the way that your brain works now. So they teach you about, obviously, you know, the rest of your, like, up until that point, you had developed a working understanding of your brain. (laughs) So you know when thoughts are silly thoughts or when you need to take something seriously because you have a gut feeling, like these kinds of things. You can't trust your body anymore when you have PTSD. You can't trust your brain because it's sending off 100% red alarms, like warnings everywhere, which are not always solicited. (laughs) They're usually like, they don't make sense. So he taught me how to understand my new brain. And we see this in MRI scans and various um, visual diagnostics of PTSD that the brain does physically change with Yes. Which is fascinating. Like it's a physical injury beyond (laughs) just a mental injury that it physically shows up in these tests and it needs to be taken a lot more seriously than it is because it's wild. So many people just negate that and they're like, yeah, it's all in your head. It really is. But it's in the structure of my brain and I can't just think it away, you know? Yeah. 
basically we convinced Danny that her brain was no longer the brain that she was used to working with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that unfortunately took a lot of time too. And then we started working with prolonged exposure therapy. And so again, this is a highly credentialed forensic psychologist putting me through this therapy that will sound archaic. I acknowledge that. It sounds honestly like prehistoric and torture method because it was. And honestly, I'm happy that I went through it so that I can share this with everybody else who's considering treatment options because it was awful. Mm -hmm. Prolonged exposure therapy at its very nature is literally sitting in the most terrifying circumstances or situation that you can imagine having PTSD. So for me, that was anything to do with ambulances. Sitting in the back seat was a trigger for me because it reminded me of how my body felt in the back of the truck. Again, Mm -hmm. not something that I can conjure up. Like my brain physically thought I was in the back of the truck and said, sound the alarms. Like that's not something you can control. Yeah. It's a little embarrassing when it comes up and you get triggered and you dissociate in downtown Toronto. But this is happening more and more frequently in my life. It's not just downtown Toronto on dates. It's at work. It's you know, all these other circumstances and various situations in my life that are embarrassing, shameful, there's stigma attached to it. So you think people can't understand you and it's just overwhelming. So you take Mm -hmm. all of that and go and plug yourself into the most stressful situation that you can imagine and then hang out there because that's where the treatment apparently does its magic is by you telling your brain, look at me, I'm sitting in this uncomfortable, terrifying circumstance, and yet nothing bad is happening to me. So it's an attempt to desensitize your brain, is that right? Literally, it's just like informal desensitization. (laughs) But they put this fancy label on it and call it prolonged exposure therapy. The (laughs) kicker to this is that if you leave at any point before the 45-minute mark, yeah, 45 minutes, like I'm not kidding, it's hell. Um, if you leave the terrifying situation or circumstances. So for this, I literally sat in an ambulance bay on a bench and like, I probably looked like I was losing my damn mind, but that would not be a scary situation to most people. And to me, it was like panic stations, get the hell out of there. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing is, if you leave before the 45 minute mark, what you're essentially doing is telling your brain, look, Everything gets better if you just get the hell out of there. Yeah. So you're literally doing the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing if you leave or if you can't make it to that 45 minute mark. And if you can't make it to that 45 minute mark, what do you think your brain is telling you in the midst of like shame and terror? It's like, well, fuck, you can't do that either. Yeah. You can't do anything like you're useless. Why do you even try? (laughs) And it's awful because yeah if that wasn't scary enough then you deal with days afterwards of your brain being like you're useless you couldn't do that either (laughs) it's awful the way we talk to ourselves sometimes especially when stuck in those bad days and those rough moments with mental illness like that inner dialogue can be so harmful I also learned this year that you can set boundaries with yourself which was wild to me (laughs) I thought I knew what self-boundaries were But essentially, a self-boundary is stopping yourself in your tracks when you're talking to yourself like that. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was something that I learned after the fact, but I still use it now being recovered because we all have those days where we talk to ourselves awfully and sometimes you just have to put your foot down. 
That's something that should be taught in school because everybody has that inner critic, but when it gets taken to the next level and becomes an inner abuser almost. Yeah. Like we need to know when to create those boundaries and to be like, okay, that's enough. Yeah. Like we're going to stop this now. (laughs) Yeah. We wouldn't talk to each other that way, you know, but we we have no problem talking to ourselves like that. And for some reason we take that as fact. So it just, the cycle repeats. Yeah. So thankfully that prolonged exposure therapy was the last treatment that I ever really tried before NLP or neurolinguistic programming, which we will obviously get a little bit more into. Yes. Because brain science fascinates me and I absolutely love learning about how the structure of the brain changes when trauma is introduced and we, you know, rework with those memories. So with prolonged exposure, like you were saying, the intention is to desensitize the brain to those things and to teach it that you can sit here for 45 minutes, an hour, three hours, and nothing bad happens. Right. But the way that happens is our memories are stored in cells and there's certain clusters of cells in our brains that are brought into a state of limbo, essentially, when we recall a memory. And then we make changes to that memory based on our current experience and emotion. And then that goes back into long-term memory and is forever changed going forward. So with prolonged exposure therapy, it sounds like the intention would be when that memory is brought into that limbo state, you're teaching it that, you know, this doesn't have to be traumatic anymore because nothing bad is happening. I'm calm. I'm safe. I'm okay. And then when that goes back into long-term memory, your brain just accepts that that's the new fact. But when that's not the case, and I'm sure very often that is not the case, because, you know, especially at the beginning, how can you sit there calmly and feel safe and okay when you're putting yourself in this horrific situation like it's really just I would encourage anybody that hasn't experienced trauma or PTSD or mental illness themselves to just picture like the most terrifying, scary movie that you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to like not be sitting on the couch. We're going to put you right into that movie. And you have to stay calm and know that you're safe the whole time. (laughs) And then you're just going to hang out there for 45 plus minutes. (laughs) Yeah. And it'll be okay. So yeah, when that's not the case, because how can you be expected to be calm and not have those alarm bells going off in that situation? You're adding that fear and that anxiety to that memory. Right. So when like it you're goes compounding it, just making yeah. it worse. So when it goes back into long term, it is forever changed as being reinforced as a negative situation. And with trauma specifically, those memories, it's not just like one little cluster of cells. It's many and was explained or described to me as kind of a paint splatter across the brain because it bleeds into every aspect and every area of your life. So you were saying like even sitting in the back seat was bad because it made you think of being in the back of the truck. So now there's a completely removed situation that is being associated with trauma. I think it's it's so funny too, because like Tasha was there the first time I was ever triggered by being in the back seat. And that's not just something that I knew innately. Like 
Yeah. Try figuring out why you're freaking the hell out in the back seat, getting off the highway and like can't explain that, but need to pull over and get out of the vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> also, yeah. I'm crying, shuddering, shaking, sweating and have to communicate that effectively somehow. <laughs> and had no idea what happened until I explained the whole thing to this forensic psychologist that I was seeing. And he said, quite literally, your cells couldn't differentiate whether you were in the back of an ambulance or whether you were in the back of the car that your mom was driving to a family gathering. Like, could not separate the difference because my cells are just trying to protect me. So they were like, get the hell out. Yeah. And it's that exactly that like we don't know a lot of our triggers until we experience them. So when you're working with a traditional therapist, like talk therapy or something, and you're trying to address all those triggers, like you don't know what you don't know, right? And you can trigger yourself just talking about it. I was journaling once and triggered myself into a full on dissociation. And my boyfriend was like, what happened? Like, I thought you were coming in here to journal. And I was like, I was. And then here we are. I'm dissociated. But that's the fascinating thing is like your brain can't tell the difference between recalling a memory and retelling a story and and actually actually being there. And it just reaffirms the fear that goes into that, which is why trauma just continues use this like downward spiral and that paint splatter gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it's completely taken over your life right and that also explains why trauma sometimes gets worse why we only see these symptoms arise a certain amount of time after the trauma has taken place sometimes months after the fact you won't see symptoms arise but then steadily they can get worse over years and I think a lot of people shame themselves for that too because they're like you know I really just need to get over this this is something that happened 10 years ago why is it harder for me to relive and re-experience now in my imagination than it was to even go through it and that's exactly the reason is because we're solidifying it and we're spreading this paint so to speak all over our brain in different places it's really just like a messed up version of the system or process that was supposed to protect us and keep us safe because our brain just perverts it and turns it into this thing that takes over your entire life yeah because it is your unconscious brain your unconscious mind are constantly trying to protect you So any situation that it encounters that there's a possible negative outcome, it's trying to protect you from that. And then when you affirm that, yes, there is a negative situation here, it takes that as fact and runs with it. And runs with it. (laughs) So it's like, okay, anything that's even remotely close to that is now also dangerous. And then it goes out from there and continues. And yeah, it really does impact and take over every single part of your life. And I was in university working towards a social work degree as you were experiencing all of this, because in my outside perspective, I thought there's just not enough people out there to help. There's not enough people people in the system, you know, the wait lists are extensive. And maybe if there's more social workers, more therapists and counselors, then more people will get the help that they need. But I was also witnessing all of the I don't want to call them failed attempts, but failed attempts at different therapies, because I mean, it's just a glorified system of trial and error. The medical system, I mean, yeah, really. (laughs) Exactly. I was just going to say, like, even with medication, it's the same as trial and error with everything. They're just guessing. Yeah. 
And because every person is unique and their chemical makeup is unique and their experiences are unique, then the therapies have to be equally unique because who knows what might work for some person isn't necessarily going to work for another. So let's just apply it to people across the board and see what sticks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I was introduced to an NLP master practitioner who specialized in trauma and was having a conversation with them about how that's different from social work. And this was completely by chance. I think it's important to note, too, that it doesn't necessarily only apply to trauma. Like NLP is actually so diverse that it's a fluke thing that we quite literally stumbled onto NLP for trauma. (laughs) It really was. And like at the time, NLP is not something I had ever even heard of. It was a friend that introduced me to this fantastic life coach and when I was talking with her, realized that, you know, she was trained in NLP, had a conversation about what that was. And then she was telling me about this trauma workshop that was coming up. So it just devolved into this whole conversation about, you know, the system being broken and the different therapies that traumatized people have to go through and like this trial and error that essentially risks re-traumatizing them and further solidifying that trauma. Yeah, like, yeah, just see if it works. There's what could go wrong, you know, like, it's not like we're going to make this worse. Yeah. Or not. <laughs> you could very much make this worse. And that's unfortunately why there's such a large percentage of people with PTSD who are suicidal or unfortunately succeed in their attempts and take their own life because that is a pandemic that nobody's talking about either. Mm-hmm. And that's and the very worse possibility or very much treated as a life sentence and I remember you saying that to me is like you know I'm in my early 20s and you're telling me that this is how I'm going to live my life for the rest of my life that like I will forever be coping until the day (laughs) that I die because it was literally coping like that was them saying you will never be able to sit in the back seat of a car again without Mm -hmm. losing your shit you will never be able to go to work or go to a concert or go to any social event without having hours of panic and sweat and physical symptoms mm-hmm. beforehand. Like all of this was just like, yay, I can't wait to get into my 40s experiencing all of this. Do you know what I mean? Tell me yes. that you wouldn't be not optimistic about the rest of your life either. <laughs> like, yeah, especially being in your early 20s and there are people living with trauma that are even younger than that. Mm-hmm. And being told that, you know, this is what That's to it. expect for the rest of your life. Like, how cool. do you have any hope going out from that? Like, right. But it's okay. Go sit in the ambulance bay for another 45 minutes and you'll be grand. Like, yeah. Which <laughs> sometimes it does work for people. Some people are content with their coping mechanisms. And but it's something like 30% of people actually, I think for prolonged exposure therapy, it's even less that it's effective for them. Yeah. And I so, didn't realize that after either. <laughs> like all those stats with these are ridiculous. Um, EMDR, I think is the one that I was looking at and it's toted as being the best therapeutic method for PTSD and for mm-hmm. healing PTSD. And its success rate at best is 48%. At best. Yeah. So like 48% of people, that's not saying 48% of people get better with EMDR. That's saying that of everybody who has ever tried it, literally less than half of them see a positive outcome. Yeah. 
and meanwhile I'm over on YouTube like this is the best yeah like all those all the soldiers are talking about it so I'm gonna get better (laughs) and it really does work for some people like we're not here to bash it in any way it totally sounds like we are but we're not (laughs) no we're trying to be real Yes. And like, it's through the lens of your experience too, right? right? So a completely negative experience, like the one that you had is going to taint your view of it. But just to play devil's advocate, it really does work for some people. And I never got, let's be realistic that 52% of those people are having an adverse reaction. Right. I never got the disclaimer that like 52%, there's a 52% chance that this won't do anything or will make it worse for you. I never got that. So like, if nothing else, we can be your disclaimer of like (laughs) things to consider (laughs) before you jump in. So yeah, my introduction to NLP, especially trauma-focused NLP, was completely by chance. And um, this coach was actually the one who explained to me that trauma is more like a paint splatter than just an easily retrievable cluster of cells. It's hard to identify the root because there is so much of that, like, right. But it really is. And that contamination into everything. So it's like, how do you sit in a therapy office and identify, you know, this exact moment was when I became traumatized, especially as a paramedic or a police officer or any first responder, because you have so many to choose from (laughs) right of these like re-traumatizing events and like for some people yes they will be able to identify you know one incident or one event as being the root cause of it but for first responders it that seems like it would be a lot more difficult to do yeah and even then like I had pretty much decided on what had caused my trauma like I just I, I can't say I arbitrarily picked a call like I picked the worst call that was the hardest for me to complete but mm-hmm. at the end of it and only after I healed all of my trauma could I look back and accurately say this is what caused it and right. even looking back like it was a lot more of a paint splatter than I understood so I think we have to look at it from a treatment standpoint with that lens as well because it it's a lot of things for most people it's compounding events that lead up to not being able to deal Mm-hmm. And it is, I really like the pink water example for that reason. Yeah. And uh, it is a lot easier for people to visualize the injury on the brain because right. a lot of people don't know how to read MRIs or those visual examples, but telling somebody that, you know, there's a tiny cluster of cells with a normal memory of like, you know, your first kiss or your 16th birthday or whatever, but like trauma presents as a paint splatter because it's contaminated almost every other memory and experience right just through that like reaffirmation of like this is a bad situation this reminds me of that bad situation so now that's a bad situation and like now they're all blurred yeah and I loved actually researching the science of where it affects you in the brain because I liked looking at those MRI images as someone with a medical and a scientific background mm-hmm. I was really fascinated by that especially once my forensic psychologist started explaining the ways that my brain was now behaving as the new norm with PTSD um, and he explained three things which I highlight on another infographic on my site um, but I've actually highlighted on brain diagrams where we see PTSD most often the amygdala in the brain is like a small pear-shaped bit 
that helps us process emotion and it's linked to fear. So activity in the amygdala increases. You're going to see intense shame, guilt, shakiness, all of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, The hippocampus shrinks. So that's actually kind of in the center of your brain. And the hippocampus helps us distinguish past versus present memory. So this is where we start to see flashbacks, nightmares. Um, Your brain is essentially trying to tell you, yes, it happened back then, but it could happen right now, too. And finally, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex regulates our response to stimuli. So it doesn't choose, you know, whether you're at school or at work or in bed to have a panic attack. (laughs) You are hypervigilant everywhere. You are defensive in every conversation. You tank bad days. You're depressed. Like all of these things start to appear and we just chalk it up to whatever makes sense. But really, like the structures of our brains are changing. And I think you really have to come to terms with that before you can start healing it. Because if you can't even accept that the structure of your brain has been altered by your experiences, we got to do some more work. <laughs> but yeah, that I always really liked the scientific explanations of things. So for any skeptic, the structure of your brain is quite literally changing. And that's, yeah, that's very much the physical injury of PTSD that people are just starting to talk about. Right. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that this is just part one. So make sure that you are subscribed and following so you don't miss next week's episode when it drops on Wednesday. And we'll talk soon.